How's everybody? Everybody doing all right? Let's look in Romans chapter 13. We're going to delve into the topic of hell and what does the Bible say about it tonight. So if you can, I've, I've got a lot of ground to cover, so I'll try to answer questions at the end if that's okay. So if you have questions, if you can hold them to the end, that'd be great. So let's see if I can find the verse. Romans 13, verse 11. <clears throat> says, and do this knowing the time. <clears throat> Can you give me something to drink? <clears throat> and do this knowing the time, that now it is high time to wake out of sleep, for our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. So I want to just talk about awakening for a minute. Um, there's several verses. I may even talk about it on Sunday. There's another one in, in Ephesians chapter 5 that talks about awaking from sleep. So obviously, the scriptures aren't telling us to wake up from our nap, (laughs) right? Obviously, it's a metaphor for something. Um, And so, for me, what an awakening is about, if you think about it, if you ever woke up in the morning after having like a, a really good dream or a bad dream, but let's say in this case a good dream, and you wake up and you got all kinds of problems to face in the morning and you're just like, ugh. And, and you ever have those moments like you have this dream where you're flying or you're doing all this cool stuff in your dream and you wake up and you think, man, that was so good. I wish I could just go back to sleep and go back to where I was. Can you relate to that? So when we talk about awakening, the the truth is, if, if you think about it, when you wake up from a dream or you wake up from sleep or you wake up from unconsciousness, then reality is staring back at you, right? And so when the Bible speaks about waking up, it's talking about coming out of darkness and into light. But it's also talking about coming out of our illusions of what we believed in the past, so when people talk about a spiritual awakening, they have a tendency to think it's going to be all wonderful, angels, God, uh, higher higher consciousness, ascension, whatever the case may be. But the reality is, is that when you really awaken, you have to. You, you, there there is a real sense of loss because you lose the illusions that you were living by, that really were stabilizing your life. Nobody who is truly deceived knows that they're deceived because they believe that the lie is the truth. And so awakenings are gifts to us where we wake up, but we have a choice, and it can be a struggle because a lot of us chose our beliefs because we were very comfortable in those beliefs, (laughs) or we didn't wrestle with those beliefs because we were very comfortable in those beliefs. And so what happens is, is when you wake up, you have an opportunity to objectively see something that you haven't seen before that might be the truth. And the person who's really willing to awaken is willing to do the hard work of sorting out the confusion, because the word confuse means to take two things and fuse them together, (sighs) or more than two things. So you're not letting go of 
illusions or even coming out of darkness or even coming out of deception unless there is first confusion because it doesn't usually happen in an instant. Usually you have two sets of reality to deal with now and you got to figure out which one was the dream world and which one is the waking world. And sometimes people wake up, but they would just rather go back to sleep. I want to go back into that dream. That's the person who says, don't confuse me with the facts. I've already made up my mind. (laughs) And so what we want to look at tonight is uh, we want to do some honest look at what does the scriptures say on the the topic that we're going to cover. I was thinking about this today, and I have completely changed my view on this topic completely. And I held on to a view of hell that most people have, that it's a place of eternal conscious torment where people go after they die because that's what I was raised with, literally what I was born into and the family that I was born into. And so I heard all the Bible stories and the messages and stuff. So it was deeply ingrained in my subconscious and um, I just never had a reason to question it. And so for those people, and I'm I'm saying this because I've had a lot of people contact me about what's going on with you, and I just get tired of explaining myself. So this is my opportunity to also post this on the Internet and put it on our podcast so that it's sort of my explanation to everybody out there, and I can quit explaining myself and say, just go listen to the message, okay? <laughs> so that's part of the reason that I'm that I'm doing this tonight, and I appreciate you all uh, coming out. <clears throat> but what I'm trying to say is I was quite comfortable in this belief, and um, changing my belief, people will say, well, you're just being sentimental, you just have an issue, you're just trying to you know, acquiesce to the culture, Believe me, in my world, it was none of that. Because in my world, I was surrounded by people who believed like me. <laughs> so so there, if there's some mysterious group out there that I'm trying to reach, uh, I wish they'd all come in. Um, <clears throat> and then, But people say, well, you're making a decision out of sentimentality, but I think we'll see that it can also work the other way, where people make a decision to hold on to dogma and hold on to beliefs because they're sentimental about it because of where they've come from and what they've been taught and what they've heard all their life. Make sense? So when I was kind of going through this awakening, I was thinking today, it was back in 2016, and it was a shock to my system. I had an encounter, uh, a spiritual encounter that was a complete and total shock to my system. Uh, it's like I uh, was one way before the encounter, and then after the encounter, I was completely different. But I had to reconcile my life to the difference. So in other words, I had changed, but nothing around me had changed, and so I had to reconcile what had happened inside me with the life around me. And I'm still in the process of doing that, right? But I thought it was interesting. I had forgotten this. After that happened, that happened in August, And that fall, I was invited to be a guest speaker at two different conferences, one here locally and one halfway around the world in Kenya. Um, And both of them were entitled um, The Awakening. I think one was called Awake and the other one was called Awakening. And so I was talking about for a month before I'd been invited, I'm having this awakening, I'm having this awakening, and then I get invited to speak at two different conferences in the fall and no contact between the two of them, halfway around the world, and the word awake or awaken is in the title of the conference. I don't think that was coincidental. (laughs) 
And at the risk of being somewhat narcissistic, I think God was doing that for me as a sign for me uh, in, in what we were doing. So what I'm going to share with you tonight is kind of a fruit of some of that because I had to go back and examine everything that, well, not everything, but I had to go back and examine a lot of the different things that I believed. Now, for most people, hell is a place that God sends you after you die, and it's a place of eternal conscious torment, right? And it was a topic that I really didn't want to address because it didn't bother me. I was saved. I know the Lord. I don't have any fears about my salvation or whatever, so didn't apply to me personally. Um, <clears throat> one thing I will say, though, if it's really true, as people believe, that people are going to spend eternity, eternity in conscious torment. I always like to, to make the point, I always like to take the lines from Amazing Grace, the song, um, you know, it, when we've been there 10,000 years, Bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun, right? We love to get all sentimental about that and whatever and singing at funerals or various different occasions. But the flip side of that is also true. And what I was taught in my Christian upbringing was that a very small segment of the population was going to be saved because only our group was going to have the the information right or the lifestyle right or whatever it took to be saved. And the vast majority of the world uh, and humanity was going to perish forever. So I want you to think about, here we are, our few, which over the ages is innumerable, but still, by comparison, our few, singing, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. Think about the flip side of that. All the people who will be saying, uh, when we've been here 10,000 years, we've no less days to what? Scream in agony? Curse God? Than when we first began? So it's a pretty big deal. So what I'm trying to say is that, that when you go through an awakening, you have to be able to lay aside your self-serving bias in order to see the truth as it is, even when it hurts you to see it. Even when it costs you something to see it. And that's where most people, uh, they, they, they can't, they can't move past that. Because, because if, if we build our ministry on we're right and everybody else is wrong, and we have the message that will get everybody into heaven and everybody else is going to hell, it's very difficult if you've built a ministry or if you've invested your life in that belief, it's very, very difficult then to, to come and turn around and say, oh, I had it wrong. <laughs> when that self-serving bias works really hard in there. But if we did believe that was true, we would be doing everything in our power to tell our neighbors, our co-workers, I mean, it would be a huge crime to let any person, we'd be doing everything we could to stop that, right? And I can hear people that are watching this saying, yes, amen, that's what we need to be doing, that's the problem with the church today, people are too lethargic, blah, blah, blah. But the truth is, a lot of those people, even themselves, if they're really honest, they aren't putting every effort into, quote-unquote, saving the lost. And... Also, I want to say, not to like to my own horn or whatever, but I've done street, I've done evangelism ministry on steroids where I talked to every person I knew about 
the salvation message and went out on the street and handed out tracts and prayed for people. And I've led probably, I don't even know, I don't want to say, but lots of people to the Lord uh, in, that, in that sense. And I found that telling people about hell usually was not very effective anyway. <laughs> so what I did was I just, I, I wanted to go back and say, what does the Bible really teach? Do, have you ever wondered? Because we hear stuff supposedly that comes from this book, and we just take it for granted that maybe it does. But what if it doesn't actually say some of the things that we think it does? Now, some of the stuff I'm going to be using tonight um, comes out of, book, out of a book called Hell Yes, Hell No. But I want to say at the beginning, I didn't just read a book and put a message together. This is something I've looked at the scriptures, wrestled with, and came to my own conclusions. Then after I read this book and I thought, this guy says it's so much better than I can then I'm going to be quoting him a lot, and so I want to give credit where credit's due. (laughs) So if you're interested in a good book, and he takes both sides of the issue uh, and tries to be objective with it, it's called Hell Yes, Hell No. It's by a guy named John Noe. If you're here tonight and you don't come from like a sort of more Christian background, bear with me. It's not a typical Wednesday night setup. We're going to do a lot of Bible exegesis tonight because here's my point. If the Bible does teach that, and we believe the Bible to be the Word of God. Maybe you do or you don't, but if you believe the Bible to be the Word of God, and the Bible really does teach eternal conscious torment and hell for people who do not believe, then we need to all of us reevaluate some things and shift some focus. If it does not teach that God sends people into a place of eternal conscious torment, then we really have to rethink some things. So I just want to invite you to take, and whoever's watching, maybe listening, to take an honest look at Scripture and try to set aside your self-serving bias. And please understand that for me to work through this, I had to do that. I had to set aside my self-serving bias from someone who made a life out of preaching the gospel. So I didn't come to these conclusions easily or because of some deception or because of some sentimental reason. I went back to the scriptures and said, what does the Bible actually teach? And then let's let the evidence of the scriptures lead us to our conclusion at least about what the Bible says. And if we come to a different conclusion about what the Bible says, then what we've been told the Bible says, we have a problem. I'm just saying in general. Yes? All right, so let's start with my notes. John Noe, N-O-E. <clears throat> okay, there we go. All right, now, <clears throat> I heard this statement a lot growing up. I heard it in evangelicalism, whatever. Jesus talked about hell more than he talked about heaven. Anybody ever heard that stated? Well, that's because you've been going here forever. Um, let, let me just give you some examples. Billy Graham used to say that. When I just Googled it, a group called the Gospel Coalition had an article on their website that made that statement. The first Baptist church in Dallas, Texas, first Southern Baptist church in Dallas, Texas, uh, on their website, they make that statement. Crossway Publisher, which publishes a lot of the Christian books, they have a blog and a section on their website that makes that statement. R.C. Sproul, who is considered one of the top uh, conservative 
reform theologians today, alive today, He's written tons of books and, and has podcasts and radio show and all that stuff, been around forever. Um, on his website, he also states that. So it goes around. People say that. Now, here's part of the problem. People will say this, and sometimes we don't, as Christians, we don't challenge or critically think through what maybe what they're saying. <clears throat> so I did a little research on it. So according to um, one person, and I've got to trust his research because I am not this anal retentive or OCD to do it on my own. But his name was Ed Elliott. He says there's 1,900 verses that contain Christ's words in the four Gospels. 1,900. I'd like to know how he counted all that. Only 3% are direct or, in his mind, indirect, indirectly related to hell. Only 3%. Which means that's even fewer that actually mention hell. It's just like, oh, well, maybe this is what this means. This This could possibly allude to hell. Things like outer darkness. You know, them being thrown into outer darkness, which could be an eternal sentence or it could just be a place of ignorance where you don't know how to make life work and so therefore you have weeping and gnashing of teeth. That would be an indirect reference. So including those, only 3% of what Christ taught was about in any way reference to hell. Now whole denominations and religions have been built off of this. Just keep that in mind. And people get really upset. Like it's a cardinal doctrine. You have to believe in hell or you, you're just, you're going there. And Jesus in the Bible only spent 3% of his time directly or indirectly talking about it. He says, if you look at the, if you look at references to the future state of bliss, either in heaven or eternal life, then 10% of Jesus' teachings dealt with that. So for sure he didn't talk more about hell than he did about heaven. He says 87% of what Jesus taught dealt with the life right here. How do you relate to God? How do you relate to yourself? How do you relate to people? That kind of stuff. Now, I did my own research. I'm not as anal retentive. I'm not going to count how many verses are in the Gospels in red. Like, what do you do? Sit there at the counter? It's probably computer generated. Who knows? doesn't matter. I did my own research. So if you just type in the word hell into any search engine on the Bible, sorry, looking for New Testament references, it comes up 15 times in what's called the synoptic gospels. Now the word synoptic is a fancy word. Um, Optic means to see. And sin means to, the, the same. So a sin, think synonym, a word that means the same thing as another word. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what's called the synoptic gospels. Now this is important to understand. They are telling the same story from three different perspectives. But they're referencing throughout them, um, them for the most part, the same events, the same teachings. Okay? So the word hell is used 15 times in the synoptic gospels, but a lot of those times are simply repetitions of things that Jesus said in the other two gospels. 
So in other words, if you read something Jesus said about hell in Mark, chances are pretty good he also said the same thing in Matthew and maybe even in Luke, but we're counting it three times when maybe he only said it hypothetically once. You get it? The Gospel of John contains absolutely no reference to hell whatsoever. <clears throat> I found that interesting. Now, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, so so in the entire teachings of Jesus in the New Testament, he only talks about hell 15 times. He only uses the word 15 times. Many of those times are simply repetition. Got it? However, he talks about heaven 141 times in the Gospels. So if you ever hear somebody say, Jesus talked about hell more than he talked about heaven, even a basic overview would tell you that's absolutely not true. Now, we have some problems in our language because we have this one word, hell, right? But this one word that gets, I don't know why I'm having such a hard time tonight. I need like a cough drop. Anybody have like a cough drop or something? I'd rather have a cough drop, but I'll take a lifesaver if I can't get a cough drop. Thank you. All right, so this one word, hell, which is an English word, right, is a translation of three different Greek words. The first one that we're going to cover tonight is Gehenna. The second one is Hades. And the third one is Tartarus, all right? We're only going to deal with this one here because this one's used the majority of the time by Jesus. And it's also the one that's linked to most of our teachings that scare us about hell, okay? Bear with me tonight because we're going to look at a lot of scripture tonight. I'm going to try to make it interesting. Now... Gehenna was an actual reference to a place in Jerusalem. So, again, when you're looking at translations, in the Old Testament, or the Hebrew Scriptures, you have a Hebrew language that gets translated into English. In the New Testament scriptures, you have a Greek word that gets translated into English. So there's a little bit of confusion between the Hebrew and the Greek when you see it in the English. Okay? So the English translation for this place in Jerusalem, the English translation from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew is the Valley of Hamon, the Valley of Hamon, or the Valley of the Son of Hamon. When you translate the Hebrew name for the Valley of Hamon into Greek, it translates as Gehenna. Everybody tracking with me? So the New Testament writers are Jewish, writing in Greek. There's some debate about that. Some say it was Aramaic. <clears throat> some say it was Hebrew. But nevertheless, our English translations come from the Greek. 
Got it? So when they're writing the Greek New Testament, the English language is not a consideration. They're writing it in Greek. They're translating it from Hebrew. So the word Gehenna referred specifically to a place in Jerusalem. Now, historians tell us that Gehenna, this valley, <clears throat> was the garbage dump outside of Jerusalem. Not only was it the garbage dump, but it's also where they took bodies of wicked people. Rather than giving them a decent, honorable burial, they would take their bodies out into this place. And so it was a place that trash was constantly burning and that bodies were constantly burning. And it was a very unpleasant place. Got it? But here's the point. It's an actual Gehenna is an actual proper name for a location. Like Pueblo. <laughs> like, well, it's true. Like, well, yeah, I know, yeah. Well, it's true. I hadn't thought of that. Like Bethlehem. Like Jerusalem. So this begs the question, why did the English translators take a proper name and translate it hell? When they didn't do that with any other name of a location in Jerusalem. They didn't take Jerusalem and translate it heaven. They didn't take Bethlehem and translate it purgatory. Why do they take a proper name for a physical location that Jesus is talking about and translate it as hell? That's the first question we have to ask ourselves. So one of the biggest problems with Gehenna being an otherworldly afterlife place (laughs) is that it was and still is a proper noun and the name of a real, literal, familiar, this world place In the first century, just like the Mount of Olives, the Judean Desert, Calvary, Bethlehem, Gethsemane, all these places were and are still located in the immediate vicinity of Jerusalem. So in other words, if you went to a Jewish person and asked them about Gehenna, they are not going to think something after they die. They're going to think, oh, that's the valley over yonder. Make sense? Now, the other thing that's interesting about Gehenna is it is a place that is rooted in the Hebrew Scriptures. So let's look at it in Jeremiah chapter 7. It's, it's prophetically spoken about <clears throat> throughout the book of Jeremiah. I'm just going to give you three references. But it's interesting, interesting, interesting. Jeremiah 7 verse 30 says this. For the children of of evil, sorry. The children of Judah have done evil in my sight, says the Lord. They have set their abominations in the house which is called by my name to pollute it. And they have built the high places of Tophet. Remember that, we're going to come back to that word Tophet. Which is in the valley of the son of Haman, or in Gehenna. You tracking? Watch what happens. To burn their sons and their daughters in the fire. Now listen to what he says next. God is speaking here. 
which I did not command, nor did it come into my heart. I saw that, I was absolutely stunned. If you cross-reference, if you want to say Jesus is speaking from a Jewish narrative, he's speaking out of the prophetic scriptures and the symbolism uh, to the Jewish people about their own scriptures that they themselves knew better than most Christians today know, most better than most pastors know today. And the reference, one of the references in the Bible to this place that Jesus is referring to is a place where people would take their sons and daughters and burn them as an offering to God or what, for whatever reason. And he says, I did not command this, but watch this, nor did it enter my heart. Another translation says, nor did it enter my mind. Another translation says, I wouldn't even think of such a thing. Now you gotta ask yourself a question. If this is God speaking, and His eternal plan is to take people who Paul called in Acts chapter 19, uh, 17, I'm sorry, when he was um, speaking to the group at Athens, and he said, we are all God's offspring. So here's Paul to the Jews saying, every human being is God's offspring. James the Jew said, every human being is made in the image of God. In the book of James. And God says, you're taking your own offspring and putting them in fire, and I never even considered such a thing. In other words, that thing is so far out that even God couldn't consider it as a possibility that they would be that evil. That's stunning. How could he say that if his plan was to send billions upon billions of people to burn in a fire that he used Gehenna to reference? I mean, you want to talk about trying to confuse people. That's about the only place you can find in Scripture where God says, you did something that was so horrible it never even entered my mind. Why would he use that reference if his plan of the ages was to send everybody to burn? You have to ask yourself that question. All right, let's go to Jeremiah 19, another place where this is talked about. Um Verse 1, Jeremiah 19, verse 1, Thus says the Lord, Go and get a potter's earthen flask, and take some of the elders of the people, and some of the elders of the priests, and go out to the valley of the son of Haman. Gehenna. Got it? Which is by the entry of the potsherd gate, and you will proclaim there the words that I will tell you. And say, hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel. Behold, I will bring such a catastrophe on this place that whoever hears of it, his ears will tingle. Because they have forsaken me and made this an alien place, because they have burned their incense in it to other gods whom neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known, and have filled this place with the blood of the innocents. They have also built the high places of Baal to burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or speak, nor did it come into my mind. There he says it again. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that this place shall no longer be called Tophet, or the valley of the son of Hammon, but the valley of slaughter. 
And I will make uh, and I will make void the council of Judah and Jerusalem in this place. In this place, what place? Gehenna. And I will cause them to fall by the sword before their enemies, and the hands of those who seek their lives, their corpses. I will give as meat for the birds, and heaven, and for the beasts of the earth. And I will make this city desolate. Mark what he says there. I will make the city desolate and a hissing. And everyone who passes by it will be astonished and hiss because of all the plagues. Here's the point. He's prophesying over Jerusalem what is about to happen when the Babylonians come in and destroy Jerusalem and take them captive and scatter them. So he's using Gehenna as a prophetic warning about a national judgment and a national disaster that is about to befall Israel. He's not using it in any way as a reference of something that is otherworldly. Got it? Come with me to Jeremiah 32. Verse 35. And they have built the high places of Baal, which are in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire to Molech, which I did not command them, nor did it come into my mind that they should do this abomination or cause Judah to sin. Then he goes on in both passages, all three of them, he says, this never entered my mind. Like, is he emphasizing something? If we assume that that's God talking. If you believe the Bible is the word of God, right? But also, in the context of all three of those passages, he talks about the national judgment that's about to come on Jerusalem with Babylon coming in. So in the mind of the Jewish person, the Valley of Haman is connected directly to prophetic declarations of the destruction of Jerusalem. Because that's how it's used in the Hebrew Scriptures. The word tophet, remember I told you we'd come back to that? The word tophet, incidentally, means a place of fire. But here's what I want you to get. Remember I said that meaning changes with culture. In other words, context determines meaning just as much as content. So I keep giving these examples, but for those who maybe haven't heard it before, if I say I have a flat, same word in English, same content, but I say it to Americans they're going to think flat tire. But if I'm in the UK or if I'm in London and I say I have a flat, they are not going to think flat tire. They're going to think an apartment, someplace where I live, right? Well, it's the same language. But you see, the context determines the meaning. Now, that's geographic. Same language. The time period also determines meaning because that's another context. 
if I were to say I'm gay, this is the, the only like one that I can really come up with that has so radically changed meaning from earlier to now. If a person said they were gay, say in the 1920s, it was a common word that was used to describe they're happy, they're having a good time. If you use the word gay today, it means someone's sexual orientation. So it's the same word, different time periods, different meanings. So if you're going to get the meaning, you have to keep something in its context, not only within the content of the scripture, but you have to try to keep it in its context. To whom is this being written about what and how would they understand what is being said? So when you understand that Jesus is not speaking to modern day evangelicals, he's not speaking to modern day Pentecostals, he's speaking to first century Jews who are coming out of a Jewish culture, a Jewish matrix of understanding and matrix of images about who God is and who the Messiah is and who they are as a people. So the presuppositions that they bring when they hear something is going to be totally different than the presuppositions that someone 2,000 years later is going to bring to the text. And whether we want to acknowledge it or not, our understanding of truth, our understanding of God, our understanding of even the Bible is as sociological as it is theological. And what I mean by that is that we have our groups and we go with what our groups say and in many ways because we have a powerful experience, because we were afraid, because it's what we were raised in, whatever the case may be, we want to stay in our sociological context, and so therefore we never even question the presuppositions that we bring in, and we stay asleep, and we don't awaken, and we don't wrestle with the facts. Because it's just easier to go back to sleep and say, no, 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 I've always believed this. I know this to be true. The stakes are too high. So please understand, the context, before we ever get to how Jesus uses the word Gehenna, the context is, number one, it's a physical location. He's using a proper name. Number two, in the mind of his hearers, it represents a prophetic declaration of a national catastrophe for Israel. Also, please understand, everything in the Old Testament is about the land. Everything in the Old Testament is about the land. As much as Hebraic religion was a religion of monotheism, it was a religion of the land. When God promises blessing for obedience, he doesn't promise a mansion in glory. Deuteronomy 28, behold, I set before you this day life and death. He doesn't say if you obey me. You'll have a mansion in glory for all eternity, and we'll all sing and shout the victory when we get there. He says, if you obey me, you'll inhabit the land, and the rain will come, and your flocks will increase, and you'll live a long life in the land, in the promise. That's why it's called the promised land, because that was the promise. Not eternal life, not heaven, not mansions in glory. You won't find that anywhere in the Old Testament at all. What is the curse of being disobedient? You'd be kicked out of the land. So if you obeyed, you'd inhabit the land. If you disobeyed, you'd be kicked out of the land, but it was all this life. 
And thirdly, I want to highlight this again. Burning children in the fire is something God said never entered his mind. Let's look at one more before we leave Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31. You doing all right with this? Verse 38. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that that the city shall be... I'm sorry. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that the city shall be built for the Lord from the Tower of Hanel to the corner gate. And the surveyor's line again extends straight forward to the hill of Gareb. Then it shall turn toward Goath. And the whole valley of the dead bodies and of the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook of Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be holy to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or thrown down anymore. So the valley of the dead bodies he's talking about there is Gehenna. And he tells us that judgment that he's got planned is going to be temporary. That one day that place will be called holy to the Lord. Now, if your English translators had been honest, they would have translated the valley of the son of Haman, or Hinnom, I'm sorry, I'm saying it wrong, as hell. Because that's exactly how they translate it in the New Testament. Which means you'd be looking at a verse that says hell would be called holy to the Lord. Which means it can't be eternal. can't be forever. All right. So again, summarizing, I'm sorry if I'm beating a dead horse, but i got to get this context out there for us, or I think we misunderstand what Jesus was saying. Gehenna was a proper name for a real geographic location in Jerusalem. It had a well-known prophetic significance. It was a symbol of national judgment and destruction and Israel losing their place to occupy the land. It would come at the hands of another nation invading them. Not God sending plagues like he did on Egypt, because it was Babylon that was coming. It would not last forever, because it would be rebuilt and restored again. And if this is the word that gets translated as hell, doesn't that leave our ideas of the traditional model of hell at least worthy of examination, if not totally suspect. So let's talk about what Jesus said about hell. Jesus used the word 11 times. It gets translated from Gehenna to hell. Now, ask yourself before we look at this, when we're reading the text, is there any justification for the shift in meaning? From a proper name, physical location in, in Jerusalem, like Judea, Bethlehem, Pueblo, Belmont, east side. Is there any justification to shift the meaning from an actual physical location where the people lived to some place that exists in eternity after people died? If you can find that justification, then maybe we can see why it got translated the way it did. Second thing, is a first century this world fulfillment that is also consistent with the Hebrew scriptures and Jeremiah's three prophecies supportable and documentable? In other words, here's what we're looking at. 
if you read what Jesus says in the context of physical location, national judgment, that is this world, does it still make sense? And if it doesn't make sense, then what justification do you find in the text that allows you to take the leap from identifying it as a physical location to a place of eternal torment? That's the questions we want to ask. Fair enough? Jesus uses this word 11 times. Let's look at some of them. Matthew 23. I'm, I'm skipping some because they're redundant, because Mark says the same thing that Matthew said. Or Luke says the same thing that all three of them said. Got it? But if you run hell and look, how many times does he use Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? 11 times. Everybody good? Matthew 23, verse 15. Jesus says in verse 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, You travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you yourselves. Now, again, notice, he's not using that verse to reference even a place. He's not saying twice the son that's going to go to hell. He says twice the son of hell that you are. So you can't use one of those 11 places and say, oh, he's talking about a place of eternal. Is he talking about a place? Twice the son of Gehenna. Now, keep in mind, what is Gehenna? What is it? It's a place, but it's also the garbage dump. (laughs) It's also the place where dead bodies were burned. Right? So doesn't it make sense then that Jesus could be using that as a reference? I mean, it wasn't a place people went to hang out. Hey, what you doing Friday night? Uh, Abraham? Oh, well, gee, uh, Moses, I don't know. Well, hey, have, we're having a party down at Gehenna. You want to come? Uh, no, thank you. I mean, <laughs> you get it? It's not a pleasant place. <laughs> so, so, does, so is it possible that Jesus is just making a point that their works were vain? and garbage, and leading to death, without adding any eternal stuff to it. Isn't that possible? Now, come with me to verse 33, because again, let's keep it in context. Context of what's being said, not just cherry-picking this verse and saying, oh, this teaches this, but who's he talking to? What is he talking to them about? What's the flow of the conversation? Not a sound bite, Right? So, Jesus is talking to the religious leaders in Jerusalem at that day, right? And he's telling them they are not the people that they claim to be. They are not the people of God. They are not doing the work of God. They are not teaching the teachings of God. That's the whole point. Then he gets to verse 33, and he says, Serpents! Brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Now, listen carefully. Well, let's just read it. How can you escape 
How can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in the synagogues and persecute from city to city. That on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. So he says, Scribes and Pharisees, how can you escape the judgment of hell, the condemnation of hell? Then he proceeds to say, all this judgment, this condemnation of hell, is going to be about you and your generation. That's what he's saying. Now, if this is some far-off otherworldly place where people go and suffer forever, that doesn't really make I mean, it can make some sense, but it also, in my mind, makes more sense if he's talking about Gehenna and talking about national judgment. Because Matthew 24, which follows right after these verses, and he says, this will come on this generation, right? He prophesies the destruction of Jerusalem that would happen at the hands of the Romans in 70 AD. He pronounces all this judgment on the the old covenant system and the teachers of Israel, the scribes of Pharisees, brood of vipers, woe unto you, using all this prophetic language, language that the prophets used, language that Jeremiah used, language that Isaiah used. He's functioning as an Old Testament, if you will, as 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 a Jewish prophet. And then he says, how can you escape the condemnation of Gehenna? What's the condemnation of Gehenna in the mind of his hearers? We just read it in Jeremiah. What's the condemnation of Gehenna in the mind of the hearers of the first century Jews? Keep in mind, guys, these are people who believe the Messiah because it's all about the land. So they believe that they're not occupying the land. They're slaves in the land to Rome. They had really never been free after the Babylonian captivity. That's what all your books that got taken out of the Catholic Bible is about. Like the book of Maccabees and all that stuff. Right? So they're waiting for political Messiah who's going to overthrow Rome and establish them to the same glory that they had under King David. That's their expectation. And Jesus, who is claiming to be their Messiah, is standing in front of them saying, this is your, this is your, what you think is going to happen because you think you're so great, but I'm telling you, the condemnation of Gehenna is going to come on you. Now to people who studied the Bible, who lived in Jerusalem, what, for the love of God, is the condemnation of Gehenna? It's national judgment. So right after he finishes saying that, that it will be left desolate, he directly quotes Jeremiah. Because remember I told you, remember that word? Jeremiah said it will be left desolate. And Jesus tells him, your house will be left desolate to you. And so what happens after that? We don't know because we quit reading at 23 because we're only reading a chapter a day. (laughs) And we get up the next day to read chapter 24 and we forgot what happened the day before. So what happens next is the disciples come and show them all the buildings in the temple and say, look at the temple, look at the buildings, isn't this amazing? And Jesus says, all this stuff that you see standing here, there will not be one stone left upon another. And then he proceeds to talk about how Rome in 70 AD would invade Jerusalem and fulfill once again Jeremiah's prophecies where everything would be destroyed 
Everything would be torn down. The city would be burned with fire. Oh, and guess what? We're told that the bodies of the Jews were dumped where? In the valley of Gehenna and burned with fire. Here's Josephus. Josephus, historian for the Romans, who documented the destruction of Jerusalem. And we still have his writings today. He said, Caesar gave orders that they should now demolish the entire city and temple. It was so thoroughly laid, even with the ground, by those that dug it up to the foundation, that there was left nothing to make those that came thither to believe it had ever been inhabited. This was the end which Jerusalem came to by the madness of those who, um, those that were for innovations, a city otherwise of great magnificence and of mighty fame among all mankind. Getting awful quiet in here. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard it said, by those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. Now, stop, take a breath. To whom is Jesus speaking? It's not a trick question. He's got a Jewish audience. When he says, you've heard it said of old, what is he referencing? You've heard it said of old, you shall not murder. What's he referencing? Yeah, the scriptures. You guys always look like I'm setting you up for a trick question or something. <laughs> right. Now, a person who murdered under the, under the Torah, what happened to him? They were, yes, they were stoned. They were also murdered. And guess where their bodies were dumped? Thank you. You have heard it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, or you fool, shall be in... Now, see, why don't they translate that as you fool? I'm just saying. All right. Like, why do they leave that in Aramaic? Shall be in danger of the council, but whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. In danger of the fire of Gehenna. What pops in the mind of the hair? Oh, that place where if you killed somebody... See, the point Jesus is making is he's saying, look, you think as long as you have right behaviors, everything is okay. As long as you, in other words, you, you live right, not much different than we do today. I don't speed, I, I speed until I see a police officer on the road. <laughs> then I'm like the rest of y'all, I slow down. Why? Because I don't want to pay the ticket. If I'm speeding, I'm in a hurry, I don't want to be pulled over. Right? You think people have changed? So Jesus is basically saying, you follow the law because you're afraid of the, the, of the fear, but let's look at the deeper issue. But at any rate, the fire of Gehenna fits perfectly with the context of the thoughts of the people. 
about death and judgment, but not about eternal conscious torment. Matthew 5.29. Oh, this is my favorite. If your right eye causes... I mean, if you really want to make... Well, you don't want to. You really want to make a hellfire and brimstone Bible thumper embarrassed. Read them this passage. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, cast it from you. For it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than that your whole body be cast into Gehenna. He didn't say your soul. Your whole body be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than that your whole body be cast into Gehenna. The body. The body. So he's not talking about the soul. <laughs> but he also doesn't say, let's say, let's suppose he was. Let's suppose he was talking about the soul going to hell. Let's just suppose he was. The remedy he gives you is self-mutilation. He does not give you a remedy that says just accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Just go to the priest and get confession. No, cut your hand off, pluck out your eye, you're good. Sometimes the prophetic language, first century language, and even today, we overstate for the purpose of effect, and it was common for the prophets to speak this way. Let's look at some more. Luke 12. Is this all right? We're almost done. Luke 12, 4. Now, again, if we put it in context, in verse 1 he says, Beware of the Pharisees, the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, right? Then he says, And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you shall fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has the power to cast into Gehenna, or into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Um, and are not five sparrows sold for two... No, 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 that's, that's it, just those... Okay, so don't be afraid of people who can hurt the body, but after that can do you no more harm. But be afraid of him who has the power to cast you into Gehenna. Yes, I say, to fear him. Now, come with me to Luke... Down to verse 49. Nope, wrong verse. Wow, that reads so differently in that translation. The one translation says, cast the, the, destroy the soul. Do not be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul. Some of you familiar with that? Okay. So, The point is, what he's saying is, the body can go to Gehenna, the place of judgment, right? But fear him. But here's what he says, and I'm sorry it's not in this in this Bible. It's in the one I was using. I don't know what happened to the translation. But you're familiar with it, right? 
But here's the thing that he says, destroy body and soul. He doesn't say keep the soul alive and punish it forever. And the point he's making, he's talking to his friends when he's warning about hell. He's not talking to the masses that are worshipping Diana and Artemis and Baal. He's talking to his friends, my friends. And what he's trying to tell them is, you're going to have a lot of people persecute you. You're going to have a lot of people come against you. Don't be afraid of people. The lesson is don't fear man. Not the lesson is be afraid God's going to send you to hell. point is destroying also i mean even even if we did want to say okay the final judgment for people who don't believe is they just cease to exist okay fine because it talks about the destruction of the soul but nowhere in there does it talk about keeping the soul alive and punishing it for all eternity uh, then in verse 49 he says <laughs> I came to send fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. The word for earth there is a word in the Greek, G-E. So earth is just, if you were going to write it in English, it's just G-E, like the, what do you call them? Appliances. (laughs) It's the word that means the land. So remember, the Old Testament Israel is all about the land. So he's not saying the whole earth is going to be, I'm going to send fire on the whole earth. He's talking about his coming is going to precede the judgment that's about to come. And we know this because a couple verses later he says in verse 56, Hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth. How is it that you do not discern the times? Let's go to Mark's gospel. You doing all right? Am I putting a spin on this, or can you see this from the scripture for yourself? Huh? I'm just spinning it. All right, watch this. This is one of the scarier ones. Mark 9, verse 42 to 49. But whoever causes, verse 42, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where, quote, their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes be cast into hellfire where their worm does not die, quote, where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. For everyone will be seasoned with fire and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Everyone will be seasoned with fire. All right. 
Again, is Jesus teaching self-mutilation? He's definitely not saying, confess your sins, receive me as Lord and Savior, take the Eucharist, join the Catholic Church, get baptized to avoid all this. The solution he gives you is self-mutilation. Now, there's nobody today practicing that. They'll say, oh no, Jesus was speaking in hyperbole. Oh, you mean he wasn't speaking literally? Okay, so, 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 he's not speaking literally here, but a couple of verses down when he talks about the fire not being quenched and the worm not dying, he, he, the, 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 out goes the hyperbole. This is real, man. Blink, blink, blink. I mean, how do you know? Now here's the other thing. He says it's better to enter life with one hand than to have two hands go to Gehenna. It's better to enter life blind. So, okay, now you got to tell me. All right, so now you've got a hell where there's unquenchable fire, because you're reading it literally, because Jesus couldn't possibly be using hyperbole, even though you just admitted he's using hyperbole a few words before that. But let's come back to your literal hell. Then you have a literal heaven with the, the, the fugitive's one-armed man. Walking around. Or somebody with an eye patch in heaven. Oh, I see you took Jesus really seriously. No wonder you got that bigger mansion than I got. Because that's what he says. It's better to enter life maimed. So if he's talking, how's he talking about the afterlife? So okay, you want to have a literal hell with literal fire, then you have to have a literal heaven with handicapped people. Alright. Now, actually, when Jesus says the worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched, he's also quoting from Isaiah, another prophet, at the end of the book, Isaiah 66, and verse 24. And again, all this stuff is forecasting the destruction of Jerusalem, Israel losing the land, and being brought back in restoration. That's the whole message of the prophets, aside from their messianic prophecies that point to Jesus, right? So it says in verse 24, And they shall go forth and look upon the corpses. Everybody say corpses. What's a corpse? It's a dead body specifically, right? It's a dead body, right? And who do you suppose the they is? We don't know yet, but... They shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, for their worm does not die, and their fire is not quenched, and they shall be called in abhorrence to all flesh. He's talking about people being judged and thrown into Gehenna. And people could walk by. If he's talking about an, a hell in the afterlife, how in the world are people walking by and looking at their dead corpses? Or should I say, how in the hell? <laughs> Are they going by and looking at their dead corpses? That's what Jesus is quoting from. So again, in the mind of a first century Jew who knows the scriptures, are they thinking eternal conscious torment? What are they thinking? They're thinking death, hellfire, Gehenna, bodies, corpses, national judgment. 
And remember, Jesus is speaking to the generation that was going to experience all the horrible stuff that Josephus wrote about. And all the stuff that the prophets prophesied about when they were referencing Gehenna. (laughs) So doesn't it make sense that Jesus would be warning his hearers about a real worldly judgment that's about to come upon them when they're expecting a Messiah that's going to deliver them? Is that such a stretch? Alright. Where am I going with this? I don't even know. Let's try this. Let me see. Oh yeah, let's look at this. Ezekiel 27, because Jesus is using language of the prophets. Ezekiel 27, which is hyperbolic. I'm sorry, Ezekiel 20. I'm just going to give you two. I've got several here, but I'm just going to give you two. Ezekiel 20, verse 47. And say to the forest of the south, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will kindle a fire in you, and it shall devour every green tree and every dry tree in you. The blazing flame shall not be quenched, and all faces from the south and the north shall be, shall be scorched by it. So God is prophesying a judgment on the southern region. And he says it's going to be a fire that's going to burn trees, right? Is this a place that's after? Or is this a right now, right here place? Yeah, it's a right now, right here place, clearly. Because trees ain't going to hell. What did a tree ever do? Right? And it says the fires will not be... Same thing in Jeremiah 21, verses 10 through 12, but I'll let you look that up if you want to at home. Let's look at this one, though. This one's good. Jude, book of Jude. I put a lot of effort into this. I didn't just wake up and say, oh, I think I don't want to believe in hell anymore, because how could God be so mean? Well, that's what people think. No. Bible exegesis. Jude... Verse 7. He says, As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example of suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. What happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? It was destroyed. Was the fire eternal? Is it still burning? Can you go to Sodom and Gomorrah today and say, oh, man, this has been, been burning for, uh, been burning for about 6,000 years. <laughs> I mean, that would be a greater wonder in the world than the pyramid in Giza. And imagine Notre, Notre Dame still burning, you know, the cathedral 6,000 years from now. Um, but there in your Bible it says it was destroyed with eternal fire. All right. Jesus' words use words and use of metaphor would have reminded his Jewish, Jewish listeners that he was speaking of this world national judgment. 
First century Jews were nationalistic. They had no concept of eternal punishment. In fact, you can find accounts where Jesus argues with the Sadducees who don't believe that there's any kind of life after death. So don't you think he might have explained, well, I'm using this garbage dump over here, but really what I, I need to introduce a new doctrine to you Jews. The pagans had it right. The Egyptians believed in hell. The Chaldeans believed in hell. The Babylonians believed in hell, but you don't find it in Jewish life or the Jewish scriptures. And you certainly don't find it in the New Testament when Jesus is talking to the Sadducees who didn't believe there was any kind of life after death. Don't you think it would behoove Jesus if he meant billions of people that, that God supposedly loves are going to hellfire to be a little bit more specific? And then you have evangelical preachers and and well-funded ministries that post publicly, well, Jesus talked more about hellfire than he did about heaven. And it, it's pathetic. So is there really any reason to believe that this has any meaning other than the one that would be relevant to first century Jews who expected a material, uh, military and nationalistic society? Now here's the ironic thing. People who look at the scriptures about the worm not dying and the fire not being quenched, they'll say you're not taking it literally. In other words, um, it's pretty obvious some of the verses that we looked at, the Bible speaking metaphorically. They say, no, we take it literally. It's literal fire, it's literal, literal torment, it's literal this and that. But in fact, Jesus would have to be speaking metaphorically about Gehenna in order for it to mean not the proper name of a, this world location. So who's not taking it literally? If they just translated the stinking word correctly, if they had just translated it the Valley of Haman, would you really come away from those verses thinking, oh, there's some place of eternal conscious torment that sinners go to? Would you really? People got upset with me because I said that hell is a state of consciousness. Even though in the Bible, several places in the Psalms, it talks about that. I didn't just come up with it. I didn't just read the latest self-help book or New Age book and say, oh, I think hell's a place of... I think we create our own hell here. Well, that sounds good to me. No, it's actually <laughs> translated that way. But people say, well, you can't do that because you're, you're taking it metaphorically. But you have to have it metaphorically for Gehenna to mean hell. You, you get my point? All right, I'm beating a dead horse. All right, that's enough for tonight. So, There's two more words. There's Hades. Jesus uses Hades. We'll talk about that. That's actually the abode of the dead. So we'll look at that. And then there's one place um, where Tartarus is translated as hell. And we'll look at that before we're done with the series in the preceding weeks. Any questions? Yes. Of course. <laughs> really? You really got to ask permission in this church? Can you be controversial? Wait, let me, let me, let's just stop. Greg, can you cut it off because we're not going to be able to get the questions on. And I, I want to post it and I just don't want. Yeah. Yeah.
when you say I said it's all parabolic, what do you mean? Oh yeah, yeah, great question. Yeah, I do. Um, so uh, this is actually historically verifiable. You can go to Jerusalem today and see it. Yeah, I understand. Yeah. Because you can't go to Eden and you can't verify it with any historical evidence. Yeah, the destruction of Jerusalem can be verified archaeologically as well as historically through extra-biblical sources. Garden of Eden cannot. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I just, I just wasn't clear on the question. So thank you for persevering and getting clear on that. And I was doing this for all my my Bible thumping friends that want to call me and wear me out too tonight. So I was being a little bit more adhering to the scriptures because they think I don't know anything. They think I just woke up and felt sorry for people and decided God was too nice to to do all that. And now they think you know. Yeah, 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 yeah it does. But that's the key for me. See, nothing prior to the king of Hezekiah in the history in the Bible can actually be historically or archaeologically verified. So by that I mean the archaeology supports it and there's documentation from other civilizations who dealt with Israel who kept records that also verified outside the biblical sources. Now people can say... You know, like, well, then did, did Moses lead the Egyptians out and, and all that stuff? Um, there is, n- not only is there not archaeological evidence that supports that, there's archaeological evidence that contradicts that. There's also historical evidence that contradicts that. Now, you could say the absence of evidence is not the evidence of absence. So, in other words, just because we can't verify it doesn't mean it didn't happen. Um, and so I'm not going to argue dogmatically whether it historically did or didn't happen. But on these issues, the destruction of Jerusalem, the, all those New Testament issues, very historically verifiable. So it, for me, it puts us on very different territory. And you don't have talking snakes and fire coming out of heaven. You know, you have a real Roman army. So it's also more conceivable... In other words, it uses less mythological language. Yes? Well, without getting too technical, the word that gets translated eternal is actually not the Greek word that means what our word eternal means. It actually means the opposite. It means for a time period. But setting that aside, my point is that the Bible often speaks in what's called hyperbole, which means it's overstated to make a point. And it's just kind of a Jewish thing. It's hard, isn't it? So you have to do a lot of comparison and a lot of exegesis, which the average person can't do. 
So, but I mean, really, most people aren't reading their Bible at home trying to decide whether or not hell is a real place or a place in Jerusalem. You know what I mean? But I think it's unfortunate that the translators translated it the way they did. Think about it. They took three Greek words that mean three totally different things and used one English word to refer to all of them. That's not really fair to us if we want to understand it. Yeah, but in this case, they could have translated it Gehenna as a geographical location. Hades actually is the abode of the dead, so maybe they could have translated that as hell. And Tartarus was a mythological place where people went who were destroyed in the flood. So they were three separate locations. Or three, I mean, three, not three separate locations, of course. They were, three separate ideas. Completely different ideas. Good question, so. Yes, sir. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> yep, you're right. It's true. Absolutely the truth. Okay, thanks guys for coming out. And we'll just a couple more weeks of this. And we'll be done. So was this helpful? And it really, I mean, if it looks like I'm spinning it or twisting it or distorting it, talk to me. Um, to me, it seems like it's pretty sound, logical exegesis. So, All right. Have a good evening.